listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So as a way of starting today's sitting, we, we, we do our best to open ourselves. We make ourselves, uh, or we put ourselves in a situation at least where we can receive. And this is often quite difficult. Uh, as, as I was feeding my daughter Cade yesterday, who's, uh, she's about 17 months old, and I was feeding her um, lentils and uh, I, think, I think it was lentils and summer squash, you know, puree. And as I'm feeding it to her, it was so amazing how she was just receiving this blessing of food, you know. And then as, as I was feeding her, I, I realized that, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shortcut here. I'm going to put it in this bowl and I'm going to let her do it herself. And I was taken with how the receiving on her part became this amazing celebration of abundance in that um, the lentils and summer squash became uh, an artistic endeavor and a way of creating a new hair product. It was absolutely fascinating kind of how this, how this little kid was able to just, man, all is, all is good and how she was so unconcerned. And this is why infants, I think, can, or she's not an infant, but why the little ones among us can be such great teachers. Because their agenda, at least at her, at her stage, is so slight. She's not, there's nothing about her that is worried about the mask of identity. She's not clinging to uh, stories that keep her still developing ego in charge. She's not um, doing anything other than doing her best to, re- to remain open, to receive. In very short order here, within the next few months, uh, I'm convinced we're going to watch something else develop in her, which is a certain discriminating awareness. Uh, I want that, I don't want that. Actually, I take that back, Dad. I really want that. And I really don't want that. And in that process is born this sense of uh, in here and out there. In other words, what is within young Cade is uh, seen as self, and what is outside of her will be seen as other. And typically we will carry this, this simple model with us until our final breath. When we go, oh. And at that point we, we receive again. We can receive in small doses. In fact, there are some things we really want to receive. 
but most of us find that we are in situations where, where we will hope to receive some things and hope to avoid other things, rather receive something else. And that discriminating awareness then shifts into judgment, evaluation, compartmentalization. And we begin to author these stories of good, bad, right, wrong, yes, no, it, you know. And it's not that those stories are necessarily wrong, but what it does is it puts us into a space of egoic overdrive where we become, quite honestly, addicted to our thoughts. We become addicted to our stories. I spent a lot of time uh, discussing this in, in the Sangha. And when we become addicted to these stories, what they allow us to do, each one of these stories allow, allow us to decorate our mask that we present to the rest of the world, decorate our personality in a way that we believe to be a reflection of what is true within us. And it is true. It is true. Your, what you cling to, what you believe, what you adhere to, what, you, what, what helps establish this personality, it's all very real. But it's also incomplete. There's more. What's behind that beautifully decorated mask is the work that we endeavor to, uh, to we, we endeavor to uncover that in a stillness practice. So I wanted to read just a little bit. This will take, I'm just going to read a, a paragraph or two. When ego's activity of identification begins to be exposed to a more expansive awareness within us, it begins to resist what it perceives as a loss of all it has worked so hard to achieve over the years. The more we pay attention to exactly what is going on, the more we begin to see that our identity or personality is simply a mask that we have learned to maintain in order to participate safely in the world. The word persona, in fact, is Greek for mask. Once we begin to gain some sense of how exactly we wear this persona, we begin to see that nearly all of our life we have been covering up and protecting ourselves against psychological threats by enhancing our mask's appearance and fitting it over us ever more securely. But as the altitude of our spiritual climb increases, we will find that we can more carefully study ego's actions and reactions. Once this shift in perspective occurs and the fire of our awareness begins to increase in its intensity, the ego starts to sweat. Not just because things get hot, but because the mask that it has been working on for so long starts to melt. And the beauty of this melting away of the mask from this hot fire of consciousness, hot fire of awareness that we are uh, 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 exposing ourselves to, is that as our mask begins to come away, we begin to see clearly not only the infinity that is behind our own mask, but the infinity that is behind everyone else's. The mask, indeed, is not only a decorative statement, it is also a blinder, a very mysterious blinder to what is true in other beings. So if we can endeavor, once again, to get behind this mask, all sorts of things can begin to unfold. 
A common method, I say here again, of maintaining the mask shows up whenever the ego starts pulling our attention into the past or it pushes our attention into the future. Every one of us has experienced this. We cannot experience stress unless we are able to put, that, put energy onto some event and a story surrounding that event in the future somewhere. And the fact that we are living right now, once and for all, we are always forever right here, right now, wherever that may be, when we have a story surrounding something that may or may not occur in the future, the rift between what is here and now and what isn't yet is called stress. It's a very, very simple little model that is so, so powerful. There isn't anything that we can feel stressful about unless it's adhering to some potential outcome in some potential future. Same thing with our past. All of us have stories that have been authored about our past. You know, and we, we, these stories can linger and last for years and years and years. How we are too much or how we are not enough or how we, and where do these stories tend to come from? They may have been parental bombs that were dropped unknowingly by mom or dad or someone we loved, a significant other. And we've taken that story that has been authored and we have used it to help affix the mask to cover up what's true. An anchored position in time, meaning past or future, is what keeps us out of the present and in turn keeps us from opening to what is timeless and real. Uncovering what is timeless and real is helped along when we simply rest fully in this present moment without attaching to anything. <coughs> Yet the ego will never give up trying to sabotage this endeavor. And it does so by rooting itself safely in future or in the past. So if, if we can begin to look very, very carefully at our experience, and if meditation indeed becomes an exercise, I sometimes call it an exercise, in just being alive, just being, where we can watch our thoughts and where they go, and we can see their orientation. Is it a past thought or is it a future thought? That which is observing, whether it is past or future, is once and forever in the now. So what we do is we essentially broaden our, the facility, I should say, we, should, we broaden the facility of our awareness. And when we can do this, we're no longer caught by the magnitude of these mysterious thoughts because they're no longer mysterious. Our past events and how they have affected us are now seen. Our future worries are now seen. And they are seen with what is open and ready to receive. Just like a mirror 
is always and forever open and ready to receive whatever stands in front of it. You don't have a mirror that reflects some things and not others unless you're a vampire, and they're very rare. Vampires are increasingly rare. But then again, that's just another mask. I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere, but I'm <laughs> not going to find it. <laughs> so the last little paragraph here I want to make sure I touch on before we before I take us somewhere else is as long as enlightenment or spiritual awakening is seen as outside of us, we will forever be blind to its grace. The cruel trick for those of us climbing the mountain is that as long as we seek, the ego is in charge, and we are thus totally oblivious to the divine estate beyond the habitual limits of time, judgment, and identification. The longer we seek, the tighter and more ossified the ego's grip can get. With this hardening of the ego's grasp, we merely become more and more blind to what is once and forever real and true. So, this goes back to my original point of opening, being ready to receive. As long as we project awakening out there, what we do is we create a gap that the ego will never be able to jump across. And this is good, because the ego gets so frustrated that eventually it gives up. It gets exhausted. It gets exhausted. When we begin to see that instead of looking at and this this was one of the one of the major um, uh, uh, moments of interest on my personal path. I kept seeing and running into these people that I wanted to be like. Wow, she is she is coming from that place. I want to have what she has, or I want to have what he has, and everything was out there. I'd read a book and I'd go, Ah ah, this is truth. This is, I want to be like this person. I created an entire story of what awakening and enlightenment should or could look like. And it was always out there, which is exactly the wrong direction. So, stop seeking. <laughs> stop seeking. Stop trying to move away from where you already are because where you already are is where the chest of gold is. You're sitting on it. The fulfillment, the joy, the love, the openness is at the root of everything that you're resisting, everything that you're trying to move away from. And it's bizarre. The brain can't get itself around this process which is kind of the point. It's not an intellectual endeavor. This is actually an experiential journey 
inward. And the more we go in, the more we start recognizing that those steps, so to speak, inward are also simultaneously steps in every other direction. And this takes us then mysteriously from a very small and contracted sense of self bound by stories, addicted to its identity, fiercely gripping its mask. And it opens us to what's beneath all of that. What's, what is at the core of who we are goes way past all of that. And our awakening then becomes exactly what we never imagined it could be. I love the line, enlightenment is not what you think it is. So for the rest of the day, if we can be very, very careful to just watch, watch our stories that are playing out in our minds. Watch our bodies. Watch our emotions, where our minds meet our bodies. That's what an emotion is. It's where a mind, a thought literally kind of drops into the body and it's experienced physically. Watch where, where we, we resist and what we resist. Watch all of that stuff and engage it with your full being. And I know that sounds maybe like a, a dichotomy. How do you engage it with your full being when you're being asked to surrender all of it? Well, in surrendering totally, we become totally open, totally receptive. So, here's to receptivity. Art of losing stories, yes. Is that, um, is that when we're just walking around during the day, do we, uh, do we resist any kind of thought? Are we trying to throw out, to stay in the now totally, to, to catch ourselves in stories and stop them? Is that the... No. Don't try to stop them. Okay, because then what that does is it creates just more resistance. And resistance is the food of ego. So what we do then is instead we just give our full attention to the story that's coming up. And I always encourage the use of the word wow whenever it comes up. Okay, um, because wow is not an evaluation. I started off, believe it or not, with the word cool. Whenever a story would come, ah, oh, cool. But then that became a story, right? Because cool was a label I would put on it. Even if it was an ugly story, it was cool, which kept my ego safe because it could always see everything as cool. Wow, on the other hand, is open and receptive. It receives like lentils and summer squash, okay? And so as you're going through your day, try in the, the art of, how did you say it again? That was so beautiful. The art of losing stories. Yeah. 
in the art of losing your stories, it's not the art of destroying stories or getting rid of stories. Okay? It's the art of letting them go. And the way we let them go is to bring the white-hot fire of our awareness to them. And what happens then is the stories lose their stickum. I sometimes think of a story as, as a wad of duct tape. That you know, if, I, if I wadded up a big thing of duct tape and I threw it against the wall, it would stick, right? And what happens is the, when we bring the, our awareness to our stories, the stickiness of that duct tape begins to just, it gets worn off very quickly. And so it doesn't, it doesn't stick. Right. So what happens if you bring your full awareness into getting caught by the story? What happens if you bring your full awareness into the resistance? What happens if you, you understand where I'm going with this? The more you bring your awareness into every bit of the mechanization of the authoring, of the stickiness, of the, you know, whatever, every aspect of it, the, the, you know, the, when we bring our awareness into those moments, what happens is we, again, diminish the brutality. Sometimes it, it I, I had, uh, <clears throat> I was talking with a group of people, we were, we were discussing dreaming and so forth, and there's this, uh, uh, I, I had a series of experiences when I was a, a monk, and I started to carry this awareness into my sleep, and I had you know, I'd never really done any practice with lucid dreaming or anything like that, but I was very much aware that I was asleep. And then, bizarrely, I was aware that I was asleep and not dreaming. And then I was aware that the Han or the, uh, the, the bunk on the, uh, the, the wooden board, the wake-up call. And then I was aware in the Zendo, and I was aware. So it quite honestly, it was this constant awareness that was carrying through day after day after day, yet I would still have my sleep and I would still have. And so I ended up uh, having this discussion. I was discussing this with, with some friends and they were, they were saying, yeah, it, it's in our day to day. It's so similar how, how we, we became, we become practiced at our awareness so much that Instead of just falling asleep and no longer having awareness, we carry that awareness in. And it's the same thing in our waking moments when stories that are very, very thick and very sticky, or sometimes the metaphor, they have hooks in them, and, they, and they, they hook the ego and pull it back in. We practice that same type of awareness that we practice when we are falling, falling asleep. Taking it into the entirety of the experience the entire experience of the dream and the dreamlessness, the entire experience of the dream of the story. 
And remember, the only thing that can get caught by it is the ego itself. The small self will always be caught by those stories. The big self is what can observe them. It's the bigger subject to a smaller object. Yeah. Yes. Right. But I'm hoping that beneath all the stories, there's some fresh place to to act from. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. The. Uh, it's very well said. I, I think the one of the interesting moments that we can recognize, especially as we slow down a great deal, is recognizing that we will be provided for. The universe will give us everything we need. We may be hungry. We may be without a home. We may be with, I mean, there are all sorts of potential disasters that might, uh, you know, arise. But in the moment, we can handle anything in the moment. What we can't handle is what may show up in the future, the stories that we create around that illusion. And so when we become very future-oriented in our experience, what then ensues? An entire life predicated on fear. And when we predicate a life on fear, we're coming at the world from a place of lack. And when we come at the world from a place of lack, nothing is enough, ever. And our practice ends up showing us the fallacy of that deep, deep story. It's not real, but it's a habit or it's an addiction. It's an addiction to a very old story. It's a difficult one, but it's only difficult for the ego. There's actually nothing easier than letting go of that. What's really hard is carrying that story around. That makes us old quick, you know, and it's hard for it's hard for other people to be around. Even though I know you're very easy to be around. <laughs> but these, you know, when we start doing this practice, when we really start digging deep, we start recognizing, oh my God. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience. This is so funny. This happened uh, a lot when I first started meditating and then, and then recently. Um, I have started listening to, as I'm, I'm enjoying this rather beatific stillness and all of a sudden I will hear a parental voice or that you know that came directly from my past that has stuck with me you know I have a pretty good relationship with my parents I don't think actually that this that that what they were triggering or the voices that were coming up were even even that brutal at all but I realized in those moments when they would happen I have built a life around that statement. You know what I'm saying? Grandparents, same thing. Uh, uh, relationships that we've had in the past. Uh, it's, it's, it's just fascinating, fascinating how that stuff can come up. And as we sit still, the defensive aspects of the mask 
have been keeping all that stuff out. But the minute the mask starts to get a little bit of uh, fluidity to it, stuff starts coming in there like, whoa, 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 wait. This is not what meditation is supposed to be. It's precisely what meditation is supposed to be. And we've developed enough presence or awareness that that story or that trigger or that voice doesn't doesn't diminish us like it may have in the past. It doesn't push us in a direction that isn't healthy. Instead, we can experience it as the flow of life. We're not taken off into an eddy. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, there is that, that fear of, I won't know what to do anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Without my stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what a great story that is. <laughs> right? Because that's exactly what ego keeps saying. Yeah. If you don't have these, if we don't have these stories, we are screwed. Okay? Right? Yeah. And, and so really what we're doing is we're creating space around these stories. That's really, you know, I mean, that's maybe a, a much more simplistic way of, of describing what we do as, as sitters. Developing a little, a little bit more space, a little bit more space, until we get to the point where it's like, hey, guys. Nice to see you. All my little stories. You know. And you'll know exactly what to do. And it'll come from a place, quite spontaneously, it'll arise from a place of love and joy and receptivity as opposed to negotiation or fear. You know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful question. Yes. So I'm finally getting why you talk about sitting or meditating as an exercise. I mean, it really kind of is an exercise of not just being still and silent, but observing. Yes. Big self observing the small self, the stories that. Right. Yeah, it's a. I mean, where we become spiritual athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Athletes of consciousness. <laughs> It's really true. It's really true. The, the exercise is, it oftentimes f- starts physical for us. How the hell am I going to get through 30 minutes sitting like this? Or sitting at all? And it, it oftentimes will move from that to, man, look what's going on. Look what keeps going on. And the one, that, one I love so much is, <laughs> how many times do I repeat that phrase to myself? How many of the stories that we have are just straight up repetitive stories, you know? And they're not always that healthy, you know? So, yeah, yeah. That's a great point, yeah. (laughs) Doctor? Um, So, one of the things this is stirring up for me is. is, question about grief mm. um, anticipating the loss of someone mm. and it doesn't feel like it's um, it actually feels like it's a necessary process in the present it's not just a thought about the future mm-hmm. but but there is that anticipation of sure. the loss right 
Yeah, and, and I think we can carry this in two different ways. There's one way which I think is, I'm just going to label it with the word small, even though it doesn't, it doesn't diminish its scope. Okay, so there's small grief, and then there's big grief. Small grief is specific to a person or to a situation. And all of us, all of us go through that. Um, and the minute you get uh, spiritual teachers saying, oh, well, it's all illusion, basically what you, most egos feel like they want to do is just go smack them. You know, it's like, oh, thank you, pal. That was real helpful. But there was this beautiful story that I've shared before of um, a Zen master whose wife had been very sick. And he had, he's evidently an, a, a very, very good teacher in rural Japan and at, at this stable of uh, rather amazing students. And they, they found him, they were, they're walking up the hill and they're watching him beat the makugyo, which is this drum, it's this hollowed out uh, drum. He's beating the makugyo and just tears are just flowing down his face. And for this stoic man, who embodied this still presence to watch him being absolutely thrown? One of the monks said, "Master, you're 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 crying." I said, "Yes, my wife has died." He goes, "Yes, but you keep telling us it's it's all those these are all just illusory." And he says, "Yes, and what a sad illusion." Mm. Okay. Mm. So we have small grief. And for us not to attend to our feelings as they arise is to create a resistance pattern that puts ego right back in the driver's seat okay, and diminishes. It adds to our mask. It adds to our stories. Okay? So it's really important that we actually grieve, and we grieve well and fully. Okay? doesn't mean we indulge it, but that we actually we never deny where it's coming from. That's small grief. Big grief happens when we recognize they were never ours to begin with. That our most precious, the most precious beings in our life are temporary. Already they're temporary. Already they're going to go. Either we go first or they go first. Whatever it is. Always. Always. And in every single form. Everything is temporary. That big grief allows us to then carry a presence of love, acceptance, a kind of a divine grace into small grief, and we then become helpful in the process. That kind of makes sense? Helpful. Yeah, we become helpful in the process of not only our own grief, but everybody else's affiliated with the, the target, if you will, of our small grief. So we begin to carry presence into loss. Mm-hmm. We begin mm-hmm. to carry pre- Like mm-hmm. if you've ever, I, I talk about this a fair amount, but you, you ever want to see a real Zen teacher, you watch someone who's dying, who knows it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's absolutely, it's just, it, it buckles your knees. And it's because there is, there is this, there's ex, this acceptance, right? And acceptance, Beth, is another way of being, receptive. Suddenly, breakfast never tasted so good. So what happens if we can start applying that to our lives? What happens if our life, then we recognize its finality, 
we recognize we don't know most likely how we're going to die at, at this point. How are we going to live? I mean, I know that sounds like something from Braveheart. You know, every man dies. <laughs> but how does man really live? That's my, that's my best Mel Gibson impersonation. It's the only Mel Gibson thing. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but it's such a, it's such a powerful uh, theme to human existence. So how are we going to live? Both you and I, we're going to go. And there's going to be there's going to be small grief associated with our going, but the the big grief is actually deeply instructive. If we can dive on the sword of that big grief and let it tear our hearts wide open, suddenly what do we have? We are open then to the teaching of the infinite. You know, whatever tradition you come from, you know, when we can just really let it be without indulging and without avoiding, then, then we have hands that, are, that can offer tender generosity to any situation. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have time for one more question. So you better make it count. <laughs> <laughs> What the heck do you talk about if you don't have your stories? Yeah. To repeat and repeat. Hey, repeat and repeat. Yeah, actually, what you're describing sounds really boring. I mean, I, it's no, it's not. It's it's. Because I tell the same stories. I mean, exact word for word. Yeah. Yeah. So everything's a story, right? Everything's a mask. I mean, yeah. everything is building up on my, uh, right. my mask. Right. Right. So what would silence be like? There would be nothing but silence. Oh, I would argue, and this is just my story, but I would argue that when silence begins to inform our minds, the stories change totally. And if you think your stories now are interesting and sustaining, just wait. In other words, you got to get sick of it in order for it to have any fuel, for this process to have any fuel. You have to be ready, willing, and able to make these these addictions uh, uh, the focus of your attention. And that's what they are. I mean, we're just basically addicted to our stories. And the addiction to those stories is another way of saying, you know, we keep our masks on very tight. And, 
I mean, I'm not trying to sound brutal about this or anything. I'm just, I'm just trying to lay it out for you as directly as possible. When we are able to kind of take a step back from the repetitive conditioning and patterning, then we actually make ourselves available to peace. And yeah, bizarrely, you got to want peace for this to work. You have to want this. You realize over time that the wanting was necessary because it's an energetic impulse, but the wanting itself be falls away. It just becomes organically part of who we are because it really is who you are. You are not your stories. You are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. Those are experiences and they're all temporary. So therefore, if they're all temporary, they're not really you and they're certainly not truth. So what we can do then is we start to plumb that a little bit more. We start to realize, my goodness, we could actually base a relationship on truth as opposed to the smallness of our addictions. Yeah. Zazen starts in six minutes. Please take a nice uh, silent uh, stretch. And by the way, thank you very much. <laughs>